This is For Advisors by Advisors. I'm your host, Evan J. Mayer, and today we have a very special guest, Mr. Jason Riley. How you doing, Jason? I'm doing really well, Evan. How are you today? I'm great. I'm great. So Jason is a partner in Brookshire Asset Management, but Brookshire Asset Management is a boutique investment firm. I'm not going to call you boutique because I guess once you hit a billion dollars plus and now you guys are at $4 billion in AUM, I don't know if we can still classify you as boutique, but for the lack of a longer explanation, you deal with advisors and you guys offer solutions for advisors and you are basically the head of national accounts, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Good description of it. Awesome. So you started at AXA, I believe as an advisor in 06, you did the normal AXA thing, which is you last anywhere from six months to two years, and then you go on to a different firm, correct? That's yeah, that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> and then you spent time in the banking channel. It looks like on the private wealth side with eight years at PNC prior to joining Berkshire. So you got to kind of see what advisors deal with and dealing with the high net worth clients and, and that experience as well. Tell us about Berkshire, how you got started there. Eight years at PNC, you decided to leave. What came out that prompted you to go, oh, look, there's this opportunity. So Berkshire was local here. And at the time, one of the gentlemen, one of, one of my partners, Jerry Mahalik, he was really starting to emerge in the advisor business, let's call it. We were launching our dividend strategy onto a couple of national type of platforms. And there was a lot of tailwinds behind the business at the time. So he and I got to know each other fortuitously through his wife who worked at PNC with me. So I got to learn about the opportunity of what he was doing in a broader institutional distribution lens. And he got me really excited about just the overall opportunity of what this thing could actually turn into. So, and how much assets were they running at that time when you started that conversation with them? Yeah, we probably had about a billion assets under management at okay. the time when I joined the firm. So the firm's grown considerably since then. Was your initial roles like basically, were you on the phone desk, like almost like an internal when you first got there, just calling people or was it more the build out? Yeah. No, it was, it was a little bit of everything. I mean, it was, it was on the phone with advisors, trying to service our current customers, trying to go out there and land new business. I was traveling a fair amount, all in addition to trying to build out some of this infrastructure and make it a tangible um, and systematic like approach to everything that we were or trying to accomplish. Tell me what it's like when you first pick up the phone and you're talking to somebody like at a big firm and they're like, hey, you're managed $4 billion assets to get on our platform is gonna be tough. Like, t tell me about those conversations. Yeah, I mean, they're few and far in between, honestly. And that's one thing I think we've been fortunate about is that we build it at a ground, that, that we built it at like a, a grassroots type of basis. So there's usually advisor demand there. Uh, it doesn't so, would you say you're getting more inbound calls to potentially work with you guys than outbound? <clears throat> oh, definitely. A hundred, yeah, a hundred percent. And we're asking you for, so are you on Morgan Stanley's platform as of right now? We're not on Morgan Stanley's Okay, so Morgan, a number of other big So let's not call it Morgan Stanley. We'll call it Morgan Johnson calls you and says, hey, Jason, you know, we have some advisors. They want to come aboard. They're using you as an outside third-party manager. I'm sure you get those calls every once in a while, right? Yeah. And we've approved, it, approved you for that. But, you know, we're potentially interested in talking about getting you on the platform. Talk to me about how that goes from that call to what steps goes forward. What are they looking for to, to the meeting? Who goes up to that meeting? 
Yeah, it's it's all kind of hand-to-hand combat, I think, Evan. Like, right, when you look at approval status through different firms, it comes in varying different degrees and they ask you for varying different amounts of information, right? Uh, so typically, if we get an advisor demand or an advisor base at one of these organizations, yep. the next thing might be to have those advisors go and actually lobby their analysts and their research people on their platform to raise their hand and say, Hey, you should look, you should take a look at Berkshire because I think they're a great firm, et cetera. Right. So a research analyst gets a hold of this. And typically what happens first is there's this due diligence form that's about this thick yep. paper <laughs> that the research analysts want you to fill out. So they have a full or maybe even just to see it's kind of funny. It's sometimes I think just being able to fill out that paperwork qualifies in their mind like okay this manager probably has it has it together enough for us to take a look well at it's them, like right? it, it, if an advisor wants discretion at a firm they basically have to do the same booklet so i kind of understand that part it's a lot of yep. work on, on on that aspect so you see you submit it how long does it normally take before you hear back from them it all depends on the motivation right like some firms for instance if we have like a very uh, big producing advisor and they're really banging on the door of a smaller firm that doesn't have as much bureaucratic red tape to get through. Like sometimes that'll happen really, really quickly. Yeah. A couple of instances where that was the case versus but some of the bigger firms and you might not have as much advisor demand coming. You know, it could be like a drawn out process where you're doing conference call after conference call and then you're attempting to add value to that research analyst on a regular basis so they know you and you're in front of them consistently. It all varies. It's a lot of hand-to-hand combat. I mean, we literally go through our national accounts meetings here at the firm to talk about each one of these organizations and how we're going to approach them and the different levels of approval status that we have at them. Yeah. And none of it, it's it's kind of unique at every single firm and how to approach them. How to approach them. And and also I'm guessing some of your guys have relationships with some of them and have known them for the business for many years. And specifically as a boutique, I would guess the issue normally is going to be from the bigger firms. Can you handle the amount of advisors we have if you start to get really busy from us? I would guess that's always one of the big talking points. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's accurate. I also think succession planning and things of that nature always come up. Because they look at a number of a dozen employees versus somebody like BlackRock, who has whatever it is now, 500,000. And um, there's just a clear, you know, end game for a big firm like that, right? Versus us. Okay, what if this person retires? What if this guy goes and gets hit by a bus? So and it's, that's, and it, yeah, that's and where for- they start to ping you a little bit on your thoughts around that and what you're doing to accomplish a better succession plan for the firm. From what I've seen too, the question pushback would also be like, you guys don't want to promote a star manager because if you do that and the star manager leaves, it it hurts the entire business. And so from what I've seen on a lot of boutique firms, it's making sure that they understand that this is a committee type of approach and, you know, that there's not just one guy or one gal that's in charge and is making all the decisions. Yeah, a hundred percent. They want to see team depth and then they want to see bench strength. Um, There's no doubt about that. Yeah. So in our business, we know there's pay for play. There's been the circumstances there. I think that's going away in in some aspects. It's not going away in others, meaning 
there are some firms that, you know, they're not going to say pay to play, but at the end of the day, you support them. They can hold more conferences for their advisors. They can do more things for their advisors on an educational standpoint. And again, not saying that any of this is a waste of money. It's more an allocation of resources, we'll call it. When you're in those conversations and those questions, is there kind of a norm of what that looks like or a benchmark to what that looks like? Or do you ever get like approached with those asks and you're like, wow, that's a little lavish. Yeah. So when we look at it, it's just a business decision that we need to make. I think we deliver an SMA format. Uh, we've never had a fund. We maybe have some intentions to do so. The pay to play is definitely a little bit more prevalent in that, in, in that fund business, Yep. you know, on, on various platforms. For us, we've never really had to bump up against pay for a platform and make some kind of decision on that. It's more been about the sponsorships and the things that you were discussing before. And I think that just comes back to an educated business decision. Okay. What does this firm look like for us today? And what do they look like over the next five years? And is this where we need to allocate our resources? I think there's not as much, um, these firms and the people at the firms that know you, I think for us, they recognize that we are like a smaller fund manager just in general than a lot of the other big players. So I think the expectations aren't as great and the apps yeah. are probably fewer, if that makes sense, Evan. Yeah. It does. And honestly, when I was using more SMAs earlier in my career, the boutique ones were always, in my opinion, I always liked the concept of the boutique SMA manager because you could get on the phone with the person that's managing the fund and making those decisions and ask them questions. And it's always a really nice thing. We had uh, Norman Darden on joined us from Flip and Bruce and Porter. Ooh, they recently got bought by Cantor Fitzgerald about a year and a half ago, two years ago. Um, he was just on our show and he was talking a little bit about like, I remember when he first got on our platform, it was such like a home run for them because at SunTrust, it wasn't necessarily easy to get on that platform. And when they got on, it was this huge win and it did, it, it came from advisors, which you talk about a lot. Is it fair to say that advisors moving? is a potentially great thing for you, but it's a risky thing too, right? Because if they go to a firm that doesn't allow outside managers or third-party managers, even on a one-off scenario, you could potentially lose those advisors' relationships and clients. And then conversely, you might be able to get on the platform and get that talk. So advisor movement in some capacity could be a great thing and a bad thing for you. Is that accurate to say? I think it's 100% accurate, right? Like, there are opportunities that we probably never would have had because we had such strong advisors and advocates prior to them even moving. It was almost like a requirement for them to actually make those moves. And in, in those cases, uh, if an advisor is willing to forego the actual move because they're not going to have their manager on the platform that they need on the platform, like that's a powerful, powerful tool, obviously. Especially um, if they're a bigger producer, for sure. Yeah, I mean... You know, we've lost accounts because of that. Obviously, we're not on every single platform as a more, you didn't call us a boutique, but we still refer to ourselves as a boutique manager for sure. And, but overall, yeah, I think if you're entrenched in advisor relationships and you're doing a really great job for them, they're going to want to continue to work with you in some kind of way. And if they have to go to bat for you, it feels like they've gone to bat for us in the past. So we're really, really fortunate to have uh, those types of folks as Berkshire clients. And when they make that move, I'm sure there's some firms on there that have another advisor that's left. And I'm guessing if you are a third party 
they make it a little bit more difficult for you. I'm guessing, I know they make it more difficult for the advisor. The advisor's got to get a couple extra signatures from clients, things along those lines. Do you ever like when an advisor calls and is like, hey, we know you're approved as a third party. We're going to this firm. Do you ever internally and inside and not mentioning names, but you go, oh man, I wish they weren't going to that firm. We're going to have a, a, a little bit more headaches going forward. Yeah, I mean, it's um, for sure. There's like these, I'll call them quote unquote rap programs that feel like they're on Siberia. Right? Yeah. Like the firms are just doing it out of a courtesy for the advisor versus like an actual solid approval and research analysts write up on your strategy where it's not recommended, but at least approved in a broader context of the firm that you're working with. So yeah, I mean, there's all different types of arrangements. We're willing to be pretty flexible. And I think um, our technology and our connectivity with all of our custodians and all of our firms really helps us man in the consistency of what we do. We're not trying to do a hundred different strategies here. It's really that one or strategy that we manage to deliver to our advisors and our institutions. So I think that keeps things, even if we have some of those bumps in the road from a deliverability standpoint, uh, and they challenge us a little bit, like I think we have the capacity to overcome it and the technology to overcome it, which is which has been the case. In the now, past. do you guys, some SMAs basically send a model over every night and have the firm reallocate. Some don't do that, won't do that, want to have control of making the moves themselves. Where do you guys fit in that spectrum? Do you do both? Do you one, do, you know, the other? Yeah, both. And really, when we think about it, it's been the rebirth of the SMA to a large degree, or at least in my opinion, and some of the other folks here because of the, these model delivery type of arrangements where, for example, we might deliver a model through a portal, like through InvestNet at a TAMP provider, or through a portal at a firm that we're working with directly that implement their own SMA accounts and UMA accounts. It's basically managing outside of the relationships that you have to build and the assets that you need to grow with each one of the end advisors and clients. Um, it's really from a technology and trading standpoint, it's really just one account to us. Yeah, but I guess the question I would have is, is that do you ever feel like you know, and I guess firms have felt that way before, like we don't want to give away our sauce, like uh, through that model. Was that ever, was that a conversation initially for you guys? Like we didn't want to do that, but it makes the most business sense. We've always been the mindset or, you know, our accounts are out there, whether we're managing them or whether somebody else is managing them in a model delivery situation. So if somebody wants to get it and be not sincere about what they're doing, it's probably going to happen anyway, regardless of whether we give this model out to this organization. Yeah. So that's kind of been our mindset. And I guess there's like no way to really stop. It's like trying to stop Spotify when it came out, like, you know, or Napster. It was like, how are you really going to be able to stop it? You might as well just embrace it. Is that kind of the thought? That's kind of been the thought here. Yeah. It's just really a challenge. There, there are a couple of custodians and firms that at least have raised their hand in the past and said, okay, we'll take your model on, but pursuant to our agreement, we'll try and do our best case effort to ensure that nobody's replicating your model without your permission and not paying you. So there are some of those things that end up in language in these agreements that we execute for our model delivery. But really, I think at the end of the day, it would be really, really tough for us to go out and identify maybe for a custodian or one of these firms, if they want to be really diligent about policing it, they could probably figure it out if they wanted to. They could, but you also don't like an investment who's becoming a power player 
if they haven't already been a power player for a while now, by you not giving them the model too, it looks bad upon you and it hurts business opportunities. So it's probably one of those fine lines you have to, uh, you know, walk. Yeah. No, I think it's a necessary evil, just an overall distribution of a, an SMA strategy like this. And look, I think everybody, it's fully transparent ETFs are out there. So if somebody really wants to go out and rip off some ideas from investors like us, asset managers like us, they're able to, it's all around us. A hundred percent. There's internal products at some of these firms where if they, the advisor moves to a new firm, they need a replacement of that internally run product at their broker dealer. Yeah. And that creates a lot of opportunity for us because we have different packages and programs where we'll do white glove and customization around our dividend strategy. So that's actually been really helpful and a really, really great asset gathering tool for us over the years. Hopping back on the model part too, I think younger advisors, the next gen advisors, we talk a lot about this on the show just because it just seems to be a very hot topic as of late, but they are coming in as CFPs or planners where people like me that have been in the business 20 plus years, but that are not at that 60 year old, I'm going to be a stockbroker mentality still wants to have some sort of control, but for them, the ability to start using SMAs on smaller dollar levels is a huge benefit. And so that's one of the benefits of the models and you guys kind of being accepting of the models is you're getting to work with those advisors that are just starting out or that are newer in the business and grow with them too. Sure. No, no, that's a great point. When a younger advisor is trying to decide like who that partner is going to be, we always say it should hopefully be more than a product. It should be a partner because when you're using SMAs and you're selecting a manager like us, it should really fit and align with the way that you want to do business and how you want your clients to invest over the next 10, 15, 20 years. I couldn't agree with you more that getting embedded with that younger advisor and helping them through that process really creates like a lot of loyalty and future growth for us and them, quite frankly. For sure, for sure. Value, as of last year, good companies with really good cash flow with the ability to to pay dividends and increase dividends did extremely well last year. And the tech companies that, that had a lot of debt and didn't have the good cash flow didn't do as well. My guess tells me that managers such as yourself, that last year was a was a good year in the concept of value versus growth, or at least cash flow versus non-cash flow. I would guess as a firm, doing the full core press out there and really getting your total numbers and how you did last year and really getting that out to the street and showcasing that specifically given recession is likely or not likely, I guess, dependent upon who you're talking to at some point this year, talk a little bit about that push. And then I think we did, we were talking a little bit earlier about using external wholesalers through a third party and how that might be beneficial through for your distribution channels. Yeah, the way we've always tried to drive the performance discussion is through alignment with financial plans, Evan. A product like we have does a great job with aligning on the front end for goals and objectives for clients because most people are investing for cash flow, either now or at some point in the future. Yep. And a strategy like ours, whether it's value or dividends, our focus is on providing that current cash flow and growing that cash flow over time. So we've always tried to put our distribution strategy in the context through that lens, how it helps advisors align financial plans and then how it helps them improve their practice because it's really a productivity tool, we think, when you're constantly reinforcing dividends and dividend growth and how it's hitting cash flow for your clients rather than 
did we beat the benchmark this quarter? That's a long-winded answer to your question, but value had a great run last year. We were talking about the rotation and how it felt imminent to us. It felt like for a little too long, and finally it happened, and it happened fast, and it looks like it's enduring here. We pushed to get all of our institutional and strategy guides and fact sheets and all the glossy stuff out as quick as possible, regardless of whether performance is good or not. It's definitely... Um, it's definitely a tailwind in our business right now as a value manager that what happened last year did. Yeah, that, yeah, you got, you, I guess you got to get that stuff out, but you also need to get the, with the SEC and their new rules and regulations, you got to make sure that's all aligning as well now. I'm sure that's yeah. been fun trying to find, it seems like every lawyer at every different firm has a different way of looking at these laws and what needs to be included and not included. So have you already gone through that process? Yeah, we did. We had calls with our compliance team quite a bit and calls with, there's the GIPS performance standards. So between the two of them, they were really helpful for us. It was just more, what do we need to do? And it's wild in this industry. I know some firms have higher fees than others, but I think it's funny because nobody could agree on what you're supposed to put as your net fee within an actual like proposal or performance. Yes. The industry just said like, okay, make it 3%. <laughs> so all of our net of fees just went from actual net to net of 3% in all of our wrap programs and the marketing material that we have. Wait, which if somebody's charging their clients 3% in this day and age, good luck. I, I, <laughs> yeah, nobody's, nobody's going to get ahead of, in the end there. No, 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 definitely not the client. That's for sure. So you have your flagship product. You guys have done extremely well with that. And what tends to happen with firms that I see is that they either sell to a larger firm to become a part product set or they start to go out on their own and build? Has there been thought for you guys on changing course on, on the amount of products you have or firms have come up to you and talked about potentially joining with you or buying you? And I'm not asking if you're getting bought out, that's not the question, but uh, more yeah. along the lines of, are you guys starting that process on your own of creating new products or is the end goal at some point to potentially merge? We've always been ultra-focused in our approach here. I mean, we're a large-cap U.S. equity manager, and that's always been our vision, and we try and stay in our lane. And our mission has always been, we think that these are the most productive equities in this space, so why not keep our focus around that? We've looked at a number of ETF providers to, because I think in the advisory business, one of the challenges that we bumped up against or one of the asks that advisors have had for us is to get an ETF that mirrors our dividend strategy in the SMA space to the finish line because it creates consistency and option and optionality for their business, right? Yeah, like, some of their smaller clients, they can put them in there and as their assets grow, eventually get them into the SMA strategy. Well, and it's all rowing in the same direction then too, right? It, yep. It's a consistent story that the advisor can take across their book of business, whether it's an SMA or ETF, it like almost doesn't matter, right? Yep. So that's been so that's been percolating here for a while. Probably more to come on that in the next six to twelve months. There's always ideas percolating, but it's always been a consistent, I think, drive here at Berkshire to keep narrow scope, stay in our lane. As they say, keep it simple, stupid, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, oh, 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 always works. You've worked with uh, obviously a lot of advisors in the past. What's that secret sauce? What's the difference between a good advisor and a bad advisor as far as you're concerned? What's, the, what's something that the good advisors have that the bad advisors just don't have and maybe never will get? I think it's learning how to say no to things over time, whether that be 
tasks that probably aren't worth your time or valuable to the broader mission, saying no to clients that are going to be unproductive to your practice, saying no to the wholesaler who's knocking on your door and trying to get the next glossy fact sheet on your desk. Like, I really think you can synthesize the most elite advisors to the- By the way, you you never hear that last line from wholesalers themselves. So (laughs) it's interesting you just brought that up. (laughs) But really, I think, Evan, you've been in this business for long enough. When we look at the top advisors that run the top teams, it's really, I think they're defined by the things that they don't do rather than the things that they do. Makes a lot of sense in what you're saying. And uh, as you said, keep it simple, do what's right for your business and be okay to say no, not everybody's a fit for you. You know what? Yeah, that's, I think advisors don't say no to things. And then over time, it just kills their productivity. They end up with a client base that doesn't make sense to what they want to accomplish. Clients that are taking up way too much of their time or this like inventory within their book of business that is like all over the place. And every time you're having a client meeting, you're trying to figure out, oh, what, what is this fund that I have for? If you find it, it's, and it's such a common place for advisors to get to, because the first thing we're trying to do when we get into this business is like, take anybody that has a pulse in a hundred thousand dollars. I like the best product that's out there to like impress my clients. It's just, it's a natural course of- Which that never works. <laughs> yeah, it's a natural course of how every advisor comes into this business and then thinks about it and then wakes up 10 years later and realizes, why did I build my business that way? But um, it is something that can be converted. I was an advisor at one point that had a multitude of SMAs and funds and UMAs and everything was all over the place. And then getting organized is a year and a half of hard work. But the minute you do it, your business flows a lot better. Your clients do better. You do better for your clients. It's an overall freeing experiment. We made a move from 70% fee-based to 100% fee-based over the last two years. And that process was daunting at times. But at the end of the day, once you're there, it's just, it makes life a lot easier. You're totally right. Like you Every advisor every day has the opportunity, I think, redefine, you know, what they're doing and create a, if you're not working, if you're not working on the business regularly as a financial advisor, like you're spending too much time focused on something else. For sure. For sure. Jason, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Berkshire, tell us how to get a hold of you. This show is not about promoting products or anything. So we'll leave it. If you're interested, you can always call Jason. Jason, how do the advisors get a hold of you? Yeah, you can reach out to us. We have a website, BerkshireAsset.com, has all of our contact information and email addresses out there, telephone number. We're here to serve. So please, if you have any questions, if you want to kick around the strategy and get some ideas about what we're thinking, whether it be in that regard or other areas of your business, just please reach out. Awesome. Awesome. So we learned a lot today. Thanks again for joining us, Jason. For those advisors out there, hopefully you enjoyed today's show and we'll look forward to the next one. Thank you. Thanks, Evan.